Welcome to Creativity School. This is the podcast all about how to tap into your creativity and get your greatness out of you and into the world. I'm your host, Grace Chan, and each week we'll get lessons on how to start the thing you've always wanted to start and learn the tips and strategies you need for how to be awesome at it. If you're one of those people that feels a calling to do something, make something, or be something more, if you want to start shining your light and share it with the world, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to episode 31 of Creativity School. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is an awesome way to listen to your books the way you listen to podcasts. I personally love using Audible. If I'm not listening to a podcast, I'm listening to a book on Audible. So if you want to keep the feeling of inspiration and good energy going after you listen to an episode of this show, I highly recommend checking out a book on Audible. I love Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic. If you like the message of this show, you're going to love the message in that book as well. So if you want to get started with a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial that you can cancel at any time, head over to creativityschoolpodcast.com slash audible. That's creativityschoolpodcast.com slash audible. If you use my link to sign up, you'll be directly supporting this show. And I hope you like using Audible as much as I do. I hope you all had an amazing week. I don't know how hot it's been where you live, but here in Los Angeles, it's been so hot in the mid 90s, I think. So when it's that hot, I love going to the movies. You just get to eat. I usually sneak in like a a cupcake and a pretzel. It's my little secret. And enjoy the cold, cold air conditioning. And I really want to go and see The Lion King. So hopefully next week when my son is back in summer camp, I'll be able to go watch The Lion King. If you have a creative business, did you know that you can write off your movie tickets? Yes, your movie tickets, your magazines, your books, your museum admissions. So yes, I'll be enjoying cold air conditioning and watching a great movie. And it's also going to be a tax write-off because it's related to work, right? So can't wait to go see that. If you've seen it, I'm curious what you thought of it. Message me. Please, no spoilers. I Well, I guess I already know what happens. We've all seen <laughs> the animated version. But yeah, what, let me know what you think. Before we go into this week's episode, I wanted to share very quickly a review that I got that really touched me a lot. And Lillian says, Grace's Creativity School podcast is just what I have been needing in my life. I started listening because I thought it would be a fun listen, and I'd been following Grace on Instagram for a while now. And as much as these episodes are about finding and embracing your creativity, for me, It is so much more. It opens up the floodgates of how I see myself on the inside, how I speak to myself, and how I value myself. I feel like I'm on a path to working on myself in a serious way so that I can truly be free. Thank you, Grace, for creating this space. I look forward to more episodes. Ooh, that review gave me chills. It spoke to me so deeply. Thank you, Lillian, for your honesty, for your vulnerability in sharing that, and for that kind of feedback. You know, I talk on this show a lot about how important it is to really do the inner work, do that reflection, create that self-awareness 
inside of yourself so that you can create the best work on the outside. Because let's face it, I really think that 75% of the work we make is from doing the inner work. And it is through doing that great inner reflection and working on becoming a stronger, better version of yourself that you will be able to create work that is honest, that is authentic to you, that doesn't rely on the validation of others, and that doesn't completely break you and want to give up if people don't like your work or have anything bad to say about it. So this is why really, truly, I think building up that resilience and getting to know yourself on a very deep level is so important. It's only going to make your work better and it's only going to help you when you have something so personal to you and meaningful to you out in the world for public consumption. When I started my photography business in 2008, I had no idea the inner demons I'd be confronting almost on a daily basis and building my business, creating my work and rising higher and higher in the levels of success that I wanted to achieve. So that is why the show is so much about the things that we talk about because I know how important it is because they've helped me. So thank you, Lillian, again for sharing that review. I really appreciated it. And I appreciate every single one of you that are listening, that are connecting, that are feeling inspired to go out and make your own stuff. You inspire me so much, and I'm so thankful for each and every one of you who tune into these episodes and connect with me. If you feel like the show is adding value to your life, I would appreciate a review. And even better, I would appreciate if you screenshot your favorite episode and shared it on Instagram, shared it on your Instagram stories, shared it with a friend who you feel like would really benefit from the message. It's really the best way to get the show out into the world. And I thank you for taking the time to do that. I am so excited to bring you this week's guest. Her name is Carrie Brummer. She is an incredible artist. She's an art educator, and she's the founder of a community called Artist Strong, where she empowers people and gives them permission to be creative and to have the tools to discover your own unique creative voice. And in this episode, Carrie shares with us the magic that can unfold when you begin to let go of your perfection and create from a place of freedom as opposed to a place of complete control. I think the problem with perfectionism is that for a lot of us, we wear it as a badge of honor. And I'm raising my hand over here because that was totally me for a very long time. I would say for 98% of my life until very recently, my perfectionism was my badge of honor. It's that stock answer we give during an interview when an employer asks you, what is your biggest weakness. And you say, well, I'm a perfectionist. And because that implies to people that you have a level of responsibility, of doing really good work, and of just so many things. And really, what Carrie is here today to talk to us about is how perfectionism is actually poison and that it is not something that we should be proud of. And the first step to letting this all go is to acknowledge how it has such a negative impact in our life. And she has a very personal experience that led her to this point because similar to me and similar to a lot of us, she grew up as a child being a perfectionist and being a people pleaser and feeling like she needed to do everything in a very high achieving, perfect way 
way in order for the work she did to be liked and to be valuable. And in her very early 20s, Carrie had a life-threatening experience happen where she didn't know if she would ever survive the surgery that she was going to undergo. And that experience really was a catalyst for her to begin letting go of her perfection because the work she created in that space where she didn't know what would happen after the surgery, it ended up being incredible and amazing and different than anything else she had done because she created from such a place of freedom and intuition. And it ended up being selected as a finalist and her work was exhibited at the Smithsonian and the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. So ever since that moment in her life where she experienced what can happen when you let that perfectionism go, she's been on a mission to talk to people about this and to really help people to let it go and start creating from a place of freedom and intuition. Her process for creating her latest series of paintings blew my mind and I had never heard anybody talk specifically about creating work in that way. And I'm really excited to see how we can take elements of that and really create intuitively using the methods that she does. I really enjoyed this conversation with Carrie. It is such an important topic, and I'm so glad to have her on the show. And actually, I spoke to her community last week about finding your own creative voice and how to make the time for it, when oftentimes it feels like that is our biggest enemy time, when we're so caught up in life, we have responsibilities, we have things to do. How do we make the time for it, and how do we be okay with the time, that very little time that we have? So I'll link to that as well, and you can hear what I had to say to her community. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and until next time, I hope you put something great out there. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for joining me on my show today. You're very welcome, Grace. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. You are an artist, you are an art educator, and you help people refine their skills and develop their unique artist voice in your own community called Artist Strong. I was saying before we hit record that I think we have so much alignment in the things that we believe and feel and speak about. So I'm so happy that you're here today. I am too. It's so important to have these conversations. And the more we have them, the more people around us realize they're not alone in the kinds of obstacles or objections that we sometimes feel as creatives. I totally agree. And I gave you that little spiel about who you are, but can you tell us in your own words, who are you and what do you do? Sure. I, for the longest time, always called myself first a teacher, and it took a long time to kind of own that label artist after, but now I happily describe myself as both. I started teaching high school art right out of university. I had a degree in art and art history combined, and that actually led me to overseas, and I started teaching high school art at an American school in Dubai, and all of that kind of led me down the path that I am on now which ended up turning into leaving the classroom and starting to work with mostly adults about their creative process and giving them permission and encouragement and the support they need to own their desire to be creative through my online community, Artists Strong. And simultaneously, I'm working on a body of art right now for a solo exhibition coming up in November. Wow, that's amazing. The body of art is called... The work is called Anonymous Woman, and I will definitely tell you more about that because it's part of how I've let go some of the perfectionism that I face and really have found my voice in my work. So I think I'll kind of leave it as a teaser right now. 
Ooh, I can't wait to dig into that. So you shared that you like to empower people in your group to really tap into their creativity and give themselves permission to creative. Why is this so important to you? Why are you so passionate about this? Art has always been part of my life. I can't remember a time when I wasn't engaging it in some form or another. It could be crafts, it could have been coloring. From a young age, I always had an interest in the arts and having a mother who studied art herself and was a huge dabbler and still is, she was weaving baskets and painting on glass. And I mean, you name it and that woman's tried it. And so she really modeled for me the idea of exploring materials. But I also had this very kind of business analytical father figure who was like, you can't make money from your art and I love that you're doing it. So I had this kind of mixed message of art is wonderful, but art also doesn't, can't get you anywhere kind of thing. So I was always navigating that myself. And once I let it go and really found my own path, I've never felt more aligned. And the irony is my parents are never more proud. And yet it took a long time for me to figure that all out. And I saw that repeatedly in my students in high school, elementary age kids that I taught, and then in their parents when I spoke to them at parent-teacher conferences. And I just saw it as this void in our culture really across the world because I taught internationally and taught hundreds of different nationalities. And I felt like being in the classroom wasn't enough and I needed to step my game up and try to have this conversation on a larger platform. That is so interesting that you found this void, this idea that we can't make money being artists, that we're not all artists. It's so interesting that you found that globally. It's not just an American cultural thing. No, really. We had over 90 nationalities at the school I taught at in Dubai, and I was there for six years. And it didn't matter what nationality they were. There were parents that were telling kids to not sign up for art, even though they were interested in it, because they could double up on science and that would help them with their career more in high school. Wow. You said you worked really long and hard to overcome that myth. I mean, really, we've all been ingrained with that you can't make a living as an artist and you need something more practical like science to have a good career in life. How did you even start to overcome that? That's one reason education seemed like a natural first step for me. I knew I I tried to even battle it in university. I was like, I'm not going to sign up for art studies because I just felt this pressure not to. And I signed up for psychology, which probably didn't make my parents any happier. Uh, But all these soft sciences or, you know, the arts side of things. But towards halfway through the program, I started taking some art classes and I had some art teachers be like, Carrie, you should be doing this. I feel like that led to me thinking, well, how am I going to make money? And what they modeled was you show and teach. And so I was ultimately thinking I'd go for my master's in fine arts and try to teach college level. And I actually was accepted to Art Institute of Chicago, but I had to do an additional kind of in-between year before I started the master's because my skill wasn't up to par. So they wanted me to do this extra year. So I was in Chicago sitting around, sitting by a lake, looking at apartments in between appointments and wondering, how am I going to afford all of this? And so I just decided I wasn't going to go into huge debt when I wasn't guaranteed that there'd be a job because I was also reading about how there were so many MFA graduates and not enough teaching jobs at the college level. I actually just moved back to my sister's and started looking for work, wondering what was going to be next. And really, that's how everything in my life has ever fallen into place. So I was looking for ads, knowing that teaching was important to me, but not really sure what's next. And I stumbled upon a little ad in a newspaper, old school looking for jobs. And I found this little post for an intern for a high school art teacher. 
And it was literally like perfect for me. It outlined everything I needed because I didn't have a teaching certificate. And being an intern, it kind of set you up to get all those things on the job and it limited the number of classes you could have. So I show up and funny enough, the principal's daughter went to the same university I did, which is a small liberal arts school in upstate New York. And that got me the job. Wow. And that was your first step into being able to make money in the world of art, doing what you love? Yeah. I loved it too. I love being in the classroom and I love working with teenagers. Everyone has kind of an age that they love to work with. And now I do really love my adults too, but that's because I think we're all just a bunch of teenagers. (laughs) It was so affirming for me. And it also let me especially with my perfectionism still being strong at that point in my life, I didn't feel like I knew what I was saying with my art yet and I didn't feel good enough. And I didn't want the pressure of having to rely on the sale of my art alone. And so I was like, okay, teaching art, I get to talk about art all day. I get to be with students. I get to be fueled with their energy and ideas. And then I can come home and make my art during vacation week or during the summer while I work part-time. I don't think there was a better path for me personally. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned this word perfectionism a few times now. And I know this is something you're so passionate about. And I think it is one of the things that really holds us back from making the work that we want to make. We're so afraid of even beginning or sharing because we feel like the work just isn't good enough. Can you tell us about this journey you've been on about perfectionism? I know you sort of teased it a little bit earlier on. Of course. My first memories of perfectionism are when I was quite young. My mom told me later as an adult that when I was in elementary school, she'd have special conferences with all of my classroom teachers to forewarn them that if I got anything less than an A, I really saw myself as this huge failure and without any value or worth. So it really, from a young age, I felt this need to please authority figures and that if it wasn't an A or an A+, especially in school, that it meant I was a giant failure and I'd never amount to anything. Where do you think that thinking came from? That's a great question. So I think a lot of it came from well-meaning intended family Mm. encouragement of to push me to be a high achiever. They knew I was smart and capable and they wanted me to not be lazy about it. But at the same point in time, I don't think they realized what a sensitive person I am and my nature. And so I really internalized that feedback, but then multiplied it. And I do think it's that compounded. Depends on your nature. You know, like for example, my sister is very different than I am. And so if my dad would say, I'm not sure you can reach that level, she'd be like, well, you know, tough luck. I'm going to prove you wrong. (laughs) Interesting. And what would your response be to that? I still felt this stubborn desire to prove him wrong, but then I felt this huge fear that if I didn't meet the expectation, that did mean something was wrong with Mm, me. Man. And you just carried that with you. For the longest time and not really even being aware or fully understanding it. Mm -hmm. And that also aligned with this desire to have art in my life because, of course, our culture and society and teachers and counselors, everyone tell you not to go into art for a career. So navigating what I see as perceived pressures and influences, and they are because I see them that way, that also played into this, am I ever going to be good enough? Because can I really do anything successful the way that people see me supposed to be achieving if I choose this other path? Did you feel that way early on, like even just as a teenager and a high schooler? Is that something that happened later? It did happen in high school. And I actually had a very pivotal moment where I knew I wanted to go to art school even, but I was scared to say it out loud instead of going to a liberal arts college or a university. And 
I found out halfway through, I had done a lot of advanced AP work and stuff. So pretty much, I didn't have too much to do in my last two years of high school to really kind of round out my degree or the certificate. <laughs> and I went to a counselor because I found out that there was a Votech program that you could partner with with our high school. And they had classes in portfolio and skill building. And so you could work on portfolio and do life drawing and kind of get all of that foundational skill you need to then apply to art school. So I talked to my mom, she was totally on board. And then I went to my counselor and he looked at me and he said, you're too smart for that. Wow. And I never brought up the conversation again. He was well-meaning and he was an authority figure telling you there's a better path for you. So art school is a waste of your time. Yeah. And again, it was that idea, like I couldn't speak up yet. I wasn't at a place in my life where I felt like I could speak up against someone who was authority. And it didn't even occur to me. I don't even remember if I went home and told mom about it. I think I just rolled with it because that was the expectation. And that really stuck with me. And that's one reason I stopped pursuing art. You know, I would make art at home and I loved my art classes at high school and took them all. But when I started university and I applied to a liberal art school, I didn't choose art as a track that I was looking at. So where you are now is so wildly different than the story you're telling us. What shifted? What changed for you? How did you let go of this desire to please authority figures rather than yourself? And how did you let go of this perfectionism and find your voice to get you to the point that you're at today? There was a really pivotal moment in my early 20s while I was still teaching high school in the States, on Cape Cod actually. And I was working on my art and I kept kind of applying to grad school again, thinking that was the path and I've never got accepted again, actually, and kept trying to find my work. But I saw that my skill level had dropped because I didn't have that peer community and that, you know, those projects from art classes and things that were giving me structure. And I was struggling and I was making a lot of art, but I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. And I started having these terrible headaches. And I just thought I was being a stress ball and maybe clenching when I was sleeping at night. And I kept putting it off, kept putting it off. I'd go to a doctor when I had a checkup and mention it, and we just kind of shrug it off. And then it started to become light sensitive and led to all kinds of other symptoms, which ultimately led to me going to the ER three days in a row, wow. getting some scans, and then finding out that there was a mass on my pituitary. So that's pretty big news. Yeah. It doesn't matter what age you are. And they basically told me that we don't know what it is. It could be cancer. It could be benign. It could be a cyst. And we won't know until we go in. And they're like, good news. We don't have to crack your skull open, but we're going to go through your nose. And it's still pretty serious. Wow. So they told me I could go blind, that I would be on lifelong hormone replacement therapy because of the location of the mass. And that just because it's such a scary surgery, I could die on the table. Oh my God. And you were in your early 20s? Yeah, I think I was 23, 24. Oh my God. Maybe 25, but yeah, somewhere in there. So young. I'm just like, okay. So I take kind of an indefinite leave from work. And thankfully, my community was amazing and super supportive. And I went up and started staying with my sister who lived near Boston at the time. And that's where I was going to have the surgery. So I hid in the basement of her house while my whole family just freaked out. I just couldn't handle it. So I hid in the basement and I took out some canvases. And it was the first time in my life I painted just for me. It was so powerful. And I didn't even know it at the time, but it just, it let me disconnect. I was like, this might be it. Even if I survive the surgery, I might not have my vision anymore. So how do I assume that I know what's next? 
and I, I'm, I'm such a planner, part of that perfectionist A-type kind of thing. And so I didn't plan out these works. I got a bunch of images. I got a mirror out. I took images and diagrams from what the doctors gave me. And I did a series of self-portraits on canvas with oil and oil pastel and just played. Well, thankfully, I'm very fortunate and the surgery was totally fine. Nothing was wrong. I had a cyst that's a birth defect that lots of people have, and mine just happened to get big and push on my eyes a little bit to cause the headache. And everything was like just hunky-dory after, really. You know, I woke up and immediately felt relief. There was no more pain. So the surgery was really, really this big blessing. And it also just gave me this perspective that I would have never had in my early 20s otherwise. And in fact, one of the teachers I worked with pulled me aside and he had just survived a pretty serious form of cancer. And he said, don't you wish you could somehow bottle up and save that sense of freedom that you feel because there's nothing left to lose? Wow. It really is. I don't know how to describe it, but that is. There's no pressure anymore because there's nothing to prove anymore. That's incredible. I just got chills listening to this story. And There's a couple things I want to mention. First, I want to go back because you said you applied to a bunch of grad schools and you didn't get in. And I imagine that felt like crap. Yes. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Getting rejected. It reminds me of this interview on Liz Gilbert's podcast that I heard. I don't know if you've ever listened to her podcast, but I think it was called Magic Lessons. And this poet called in and was just so disappointed because she was brave. She was courageous. She made the work. She fought through all that stuff to be able to put the work out into the world. And then she applied to all these grad programs and didn't get in. And so she's calling Liz Gilbert like, what do I do? Because I did everything you told me to do and it still didn't work out. And what you shared reminded me just of this idea that so much more in your life unfolded because you didn't get into grad school. Yes, exactly. That I think is just what's so amazing. It's like we have these expectations for ourselves that we think if we achieve this, like this is the path I'm meant to be on. And we talk about this in another episode on my podcast with this man named Homie Diaz, where, you know, we talk about how we can't be so attached to just one outcome because there's so many other things swirling around us that have potential and we ignore it because we're so fixated. Exactly. I kind of changed my philosophy for a long time. I said everything happens for a reason, but I don't believe that anymore. But I believe we can make meaning out of the things that do happen to us and let it be a catalyst for change and for new opportunities. And that's literally what you did with this moment where you thought you might lose your sight or maybe not even be alive. Like You had no idea. And that gave you so much freedom to just play and do exactly what you wanted to do. And then it even, it took this other step of affirmation that trusting my intuition and letting go was an important and good thing to do. Because in the months that followed, I started looking at calls to artists, group calls, things like that. And I found one that just fit me to a T. And I immediately thought of those two paintings. And I went, you know what? The worst thing that can happen is they say no. So I applied and I was accepted as a finalist. And that work then was exhibited in a group show at the Smithsonian. Wow. Congratulations. That's not a big deal at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then it also became this, holy crap, now where do I go? (laughs) Yeah. So then what did you do? Were you like, I have all this life experience at 25 years old and I can take over the world. Like, what did you do? I moved to Dubai. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's funny, right? Because I did, I felt this pressure all of a sudden. I'm like, okay, well, I had something really big happen. It's really good for my art resume because it wasn't just the Smithsonian and the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, which are two amazing locations to say that you've had work exhibited at, but it was also a two-year exhibition that toured the U.S. So I had this huge list of galleries that my work had all of a sudden been shown at in a group exhibition. Wow. And all of a sudden I'm like, but I still don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> so I just decided to play and let go and stop applying to grad school. And I was teaching in a high school that had an international curriculum. And a lot of the teachers I worked with had lived internationally and traveled the world. And they're like, Carrie, you already have IB training. So you're going to be such an easy hire for schools. Go, go fly. Like this is the time in your life. You can do this. You have no responsibilities. Your health is finally back where you need it to be. Go have some fun. And I thought, you know what? Why not? So I went to a job fair for international teachers. And I found a job post at Dubai, United Arab Emirates, and decided to jump in. And then what did you do with your personal work? You're teaching, but then what happened to all your painting after that? I actually painted the whole time I was in the UAE and participated in group shows while I was there as well. It was wonderful because one of the perks at the time of that job was they provide you your own housing. So you don't have to worry about finding an apartment or anything. Wow. And so I just set up half the apartment as a studio space. And while a lot of teachers who choose to live internationally and teach every single school vacation they have, they go to another city. I stayed and I worked on my art. And I still travel, but not nearly at the level or, or frequency that other teachers did. And were you painting with that sense of freedom and liberation that you found before your big surgery? Some of it, but it faded. And it does fade. It's not something you necessarily hold on to, but I have it as a constant reminder of what it can be like. And it made me more aware. It made me more confident to keep painting and just kind of have some faith that I'd figure it all out. So how do you begin to even teach this idea of letting go of perfectionism to people? Because I think it's something that we all know on a mental level. Like you hear it all the time. We know it. It is knowledge, right? But how do we turn that into experience? How do we actually start letting go of that and letting the work sort of flow out organically the way it wants to versus the way we think it's supposed to be? One of the first things I talk about with people who relate to my story and perfectionism and identify as a perfectionist, I tell them that we need to say it out loud and say, you know, it is poison. It's not something to be proud of. And yet our culture for the longest time, even when I was little, I remember being proud and saying I was a perfectionist. Yeah, that's the stock answer you give like at an interview, right? Like, what do you think is a negative about yourself? And it's like, well, I'm a perfectionist because it carries so much other meaning. Like, I'm responsible. I have high standards. I used to identify as a perfectionist as well. So I completely understand. I kind of wore it as a badge of honor. Yeah, I totally did. And so I find, especially with the adults that I'm working with, we have to talk about that first in order for people to let it go and really own that, that it is negatively impacting their life, that it's not actually bringing more value to their life. And if they don't resonate with that and they can't admit that, then I don't know how much further they're going to go until they can start to see the negative outcomes in their life as a result of that kind of mindset. So for those who still feel like their perfectionism is their badge of honor, that it makes them really high performing, what have you found to be the negative outcomes of holding on to your perfectionism? 
perfectionists tend to not try new things. And then when they do, they expect themselves to be immediately proficient and really good and feel a sense of failure. And in fact, that means they're less likely to take risks and they often procrastinate and avoid doing new things because it might show that they're not as perfect as they try to be. Mm. That's the big one I notice is avoiding the things they really want to do because they're scared because they know they'll be bad at it when they start, as everyone is. Yes, especially with something like art or creativity, like anything you do, it's not going to be good the first time. As somebody who used to be a perfectionist, I say I am a recovering perfectionist. I remember I signed up for like a ceramics class and I thought I would be amazing by the end of it. And I sucked. You know, it's this muscle. It's this thing you have to do over and over and over again to reach the point of mastery. And I think we all think we're going to start out amazing at it when that's just not the case. And especially because of things like social media, we see people's work and we're not seeing their beginning work. We're seeing their work later, now, after years and years and years of practicing at it. Exactly. There are a lot of people in my community that'll say, oh, Carrie, you're so talented. And I'm like, no, I just work really hard. Mm -hmm. And I've spent a lot of time and a lot of years trying to become more skillful. And I think that idea of talent sometimes is tied to perfectionism because it's this idea of being inherently good at something. We were born this way, so we're meant to do this thing. And then, of course, then it becomes, well, I'm not good enough or I'm not meant to do this thing because the first time I try, I'm not good at it. How do you think talent plays into all this? I think talent's about inclination and dedication. Mm. So if you notice an interest in doing something and then spend a lot of time doing it and have the motivation to keep at it even when it gets hard, I think that's how you grow talent. Then you must believe everybody is capable of being an artist and being creative and that your talent is sort of like, like you said, it's your natural inclination. It's sort of your compass guiding you towards maybe where you should be looking to develop that gift you have. And then it's just a matter of developing it and practicing. Yeah. And it's never too late. There are so many stories now of older women starting to exhibit in their hundreds. Or you think of a woman like Grandma Moses, who never went to art school. She was a self-taught artist and she exhibited in her 80s, well in 100s before she died. Yeah. I love stories like that. I find them so inspiring just to hear about people who started later in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and still found so much personal and professional success from it. It's never too late. Yeah, it's never too late. And I also want people to feel permission to make just because they like it. Yes. That's something too, I think, with this notion of perfectionism and meeting goals and achieving. Sometimes we think we have to do something with our creativity for it to be worth doing. It drives me batty that people can spend all kinds of money on going golfing and golf gear, but they don't have to teach or sell or be a professional golfer to be able to go golfing and be okay with it. People can watch Netflix and that's okay, but somehow playing with art supplies, you have to be doing something with it. Why do you think that is? I completely agree with you, by the way. One of the things I talk about on the show all the time is let's just be creative for creativity's sake. We don't need to be attached to some outcome of it. Like for you, even, you painted those self-portraits for yourself. You didn't paint it with the goal of I'm going to get into the Smithsonian. No, definitely not. Exactly. So why do we put so much pressure on ourselves when it comes specifically to art and creativity? Because your example of golf is perfect. Like we don't buy all the gear for sports or golf thinking we're going to become the next PGA Tour winner. I think it has a lot to do with how we culturally define art. 
and again, coming back to school systems and how we're educated about the value of art and what it should be doing. The conversation for most of us when we're little, some of the stuff that gets reflected back when you're a teacher is that, well, you know, this is a little side project or this is a cute little activity. It's diminished when we're young from the beginning. So I think it's really hard then to feel permission to find time to make and to make art when we do culturally diminish it unless you're making big bucks from it. Yeah. Yeah. Or finding so much success from it. You know, what's interesting for me as an artist is that the work that has garnered the most attention out in the world has been the work that I did purely for myself with zero idea of what would come from it. Yeah. Same here. Exactly. That's you too. Yeah. When I let go. Yeah. That is so interesting to me. And I think it's like you said, it's just letting go and playing and making the work that you feel in your bones that just wants to come out of you and giving yourself the permission to do that, to have it come out exactly the way it wants to come out. Because I think the other thing is with perfectionism is that we have this notion of it has to be a certain way yes, for it to be successful or to have anything. And it's like, just let it come out of you. And what happens to it later is kind of none of your business. Exactly. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) It'll find the home it's meant to have once you put it out. Yeah. That's something that I have started to try to build into my process to help me. I also use the phrase recovering perfectionist when I talk about my perfectionism. And I have found that if I try to plan the whole workout ahead of time, or I used to work in oils, but I'd overwork the paintings. I had a university professor tell me I murder my paintings. Thank you. (laughs) And she had a fair point, but it was a little harsh. So I was like, okay, how can I work with this then? So I switched to acrylic because I have to make quick decisions and it dries fast and that actually helps me let go. I have to commit to what I'm doing and I can't just keep finagling and tweaking and reworking and you have to paint it all over really if you're going to do that with acrylic. So that was kind of this stepping stone. And then the other thing I started to realize was I should never anticipate or plan out the whole finished product. Because that takes away from things and that tightens me up and makes me start to, again, adhere to those perfectionist ideals of, well, I had this picture in my head, so it has to look like this. Instead of letting myself have that space and permission to see what the art wants to be. And every time I do, I let it go and I let the art kind of direct and guide me. The work is always, always stronger. Yes. Yes. I love this. So if we were to sum this up, into like, say, three bullet points of actionable ways to start letting go of that perfectionism that we all have. I know number one you said is just having the awareness that this exists in us. Yeah. I think having the awareness is is step number one. And once you do, step number two is make a commitment to show up whether it's good or bad. Mm. Just show up 15 minutes a day, half an hour, two hours a week, but you have it blocked off. Make a commitment to spend time on your creative practice without evaluating how you're supposed to you know, use this time super well. It's about showing up. If you show up, you're using that time well. Yes. Would you say there's a third bullet point? Build in, look at your practice and build in strategies that help support your idea of letting go and trusting your intuition. Have things like maybe switch your medium up or perhaps set a timer while you're working on something so you feel a little faster in terms of your decision making so that you're not overthinking. We can look and reflect on our practice so that we can find strategies that'll help us relax a bit more. 
Mm, I love this. And you've mentioned this phrase, trusting your intuition a couple times now. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Sure. I will talk about that in context of my new artwork, actually. Oh, great. So I was still trying to find that voice of mine, that ever elusive voice, which of course is always in your art and you can always see it after the fact, but I still didn't feel like I was saying the thing I wanted to say as an artist. So we had moved from Dubai to Muscat, Oman. I had met my now husband and we moved to Oman, which is a country adjacent to the UAE. And I was no longer working in school because of his work. And I was playing with my art going, okay, this is time. It's time for me to step this up. I'm ready. And I felt called to do portraits of women. And of course, immediately came to mind people of influence from history that we all know. So Rosa Parks, Amelia Earhart, Frida Kahlo, these were women that I started to look for royalty-free images of. But I have to admit, while I was doing it, it felt kind of cliche to me. There was something that just didn't feel quite right. But I decided to keep looking for images anyways. And I stumbled upon a group of photographs of these women, and it was on the U.S. National Archives, and they looked so proud. Most of them were wearing kind of a hat and a jacket because they were cabbies, and they were women in the 40s taking on job roles while men were at war. So it was this moment of changing gender roles, and you could see their pride and their happiness. And I started to dig into the images a bit more, and I noticed they were photographed and important enough to be put in our archives, but not a single one of these women were named. Wow. And then I was like, okay, sorry, Frida and Amelia, I'm done. Like, I have something new I need to be working on. And I just knew it. So I printed out those images and I started working with them. And I actually did start the work, but I also stopped for a little bit until I had a friend kind of kick me in the rear and go, Carrie, this is exhibition-worthy work. Why aren't you finishing it? And so when we moved to Canada, I really dug in and I found some opportunities to apply and share this work. And kind of a side note with this work, in terms of talking about that intuitive decision-making, I have always had craft materials in my life. So I decided to start embroidering into paintings as a way to play. And I was also really fascinated with gold leaf and embellishment after traveling and seeing a lot of mosques in the Middle East. And so I started playing with both in my artwork. And then I was thinking, well, how nice to use these traditionally labeled craft or female materials to talk about women who aren't being recognized, who aren't given their names, but are documented for historical, cultural moments and time. And so while I'm doing all of this, I'm like, oh my gosh, this could be a lot of pressure. So I literally start just talking to my artwork. I mean, I don't necessarily out loud. I can just kind of sit and stare at it, but I make space in the creative process to say, okay, what do you want next? Mm. And I listen. And that's been so important for these women. So I do a bunch of sketches beforehand and then I kind of have a general layout or composition, but I don't decide colors. I don't decide where I'm going to embroider or embellish with gold leaf until the work is started. And each step, Along the way, I go, okay, well, what background color do you want? And usually, I feel like I get an answer if I just spend some time quietly sitting there and observing the work. That is so fascinating. That is such an interesting way to create your work. So do you do that with every step of the process? Pretty much. 
sometimes things come really fast. So I'll already know I want a background incorporated into the portrait design. So one woman, she, it wasn't that way. One woman, I realized that I had put more of her figure in. Most people have just a headshot with maybe some of their shoulders showing in my paintings. But this woman, it was most of her torso was included as well. And when I stepped back and looked at the work and I added the color in the background she told me she wanted, I went, oh my gosh, there's so much negative space in the background. It's overwhelming. And so I just went, okay, well, now what? And so I sat with the painting and that's when I started to think about my interest in pattern. And I started looking at wallpapers and fabric designs from the 40s and I found one that she wanted in her background and I embroidered the entire background using that pattern. Wow. Okay. So I need to unpack this because this is so fascinating (laughs) to me right now. First of all, I think what you're doing is really interesting because you are intentionally turning off the analyzer in your head. So your intuition is the side of our brain that is not the active thinking part of our brain, right? And so you are literally just turning that off, I feel like, by asking and posing a question and allowing the answer to come to you. And I think what's interesting too is that, you know, for you, you're asking the women that you're painting directly. But I think we can all practice this. Like, even if you're not painting a thing, it's just kind of like not using your brain to like look at the colors in front of you or the materials in front of you and analyzing and thinking what works good, what color goes with this color, and just being very analytical about it, but posing the question and then allowing to see what comes into your head. I think that's a really interesting way to create something. It's really helped me step away from my perfectionism and anything that triggers me in that way. And I still have moments of assessment, right? But I very much separate any assessment that I do of my work from the active moment of creation. So I will do it at the end when I know I'm done so I can think about what I want to work on the next time, or I'll do it at the very beginning. Sometimes the beginning is harder for me because then if my inner critic has really jumped in, it might be harder to get going, but it depends on the work and the day. And I, again, trust that, okay, I really want to think about my layout here and I'm really ready to get some feedback from some peers about this composition or this color choice. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of this thing that I've had a couple guests tell me that they've tried. It's intuitive painting. Mm, Yes. Right? So intuitive painting, for those who don't know what that is, is just that you're just painting with just letting your hand, your body, everything is just kind of doing whatever it wants to do, basically. You're painting from your intuition. And I feel like that's exactly what you're doing. You've taken that idea, but now you're you're using that to create something that's not literally just this flowy painting. Like you're still making decisions, but you're allowing that to come from your intuition. Yeah, it's been a wonderful tool for me to again let go yeah. and just be where I am and trust that there will be an outcome that is okay. Where when I plan ahead and it does, it makes me tight. It makes me have this expectation of what it should look like. And then all my decisions have to be in alignment with pushing it towards that ultimate vision of what it's supposed to look like. Yeah, Then everything tightens up and it's just not as good. I'm trying to think too, like, how do we apply this to say something like photography? Because I'm a photographer. And I think The thing with photography that I like is that it actually allows me to be a perfectionist in post, right? So in retouching, I can make the image look exactly like the way I see it in my head or the way that I just think it needs to be like. And so I had a book called Puppy Styled come out last year 
and it's dogs before and after their grooming. And I haven't really talked about this, but there is a lot of retouching in those pictures. Just so much. And I thought I was losing my eyesight when I was doing the retouching <laughs> on that because I was like up till 3 a.m. in front of a screen just meticulously doing the retouching. And so for something like photography or videography or filmmaking where at the end there's just so much um, post work involved where you're really perfecting the thing, I think there is still a lot of value in that, by the way. I don't want anyone listening to feel like that's not important because it absolutely is. That is part of your artistic and creative vision. But I think we can use this in the process of making the thing. So say I have my camera and I'm out one day, I can just shoot the things that I feel like my intuition wants me to shoot it versus overly trying to plan out a shot. Yep. You could set a timer and say, I'm only going to be able to walk around in this space, the environment. I mean, there's so many things you could just intuitively say, I'm going to drive for 30 minutes and wherever I end up, this is where I'm going to take my shots. Yeah. You know, there's so many ways you could play with this. It's a kind of adding structure to create freedom, which is kind of weird. Yeah, it's a paradox. <laughs> yeah. For me, anyways, that's what helps me feel free is having some kind of system in place to go, okay, I'm going to play today and I am going to take the bus here and I'm going to get off at the sixth stop and then Ooh. let's see what there is to draw. Or photograph. I love this technique. I'm going to try this. I think all of us listening need to try doing this and see what happens just for fun because it's fun, it's playing, and it's just letting the art and process guide us as opposed to being so prescripted about it. And then I keep going back to you asking the woman what the wallpaper should be in the background. Like, what did that sound like? What did that feel like? So it really is very quiet and meditative. I sit with the painting and I try to. It's not like I'm staring obsessively at it, but I don't let myself clean my studio space or fiddle with other things or play with my phone. I'm just sitting with the painting and thinking, okay, what's next? And sometimes it doesn't come in the first sitting. I have multiple projects going on at once so that I have space to wait for an answer because that's also how I get their titles because they don't have names. The series is called Anonymous Woman. And I did apply and I'm going to have an exhibition through the city of Ottawa in Canada in November. Wow. And the final pieces, they tell me their names and I name them for their title. Oh, I just got chills. That is so full circle and beautiful. And congratulations you. on your show. That's really exciting. Thank you. I'm really excited. It feels like a long time coming and I'm really proud that I finally gave myself the space and again, that time for play. Because if I hadn't done all these other things, if I hadn't given myself permission to explore, if I hadn't had years of making art that didn't quite feel right, but I kept making anyway, I wouldn't be making this art that I'm so proud of right now. Oh, I'm clapping. That is so <laughs> awesome. That makes me so happy. Gosh, this is so awesome. If there was just one message you wish you could convey to your community, what would that be? You are enough. Mm. You're enough. What you want to do, how you live your life currently, how you want to incorporate into the life you currently lead, all of that is enough. And you don't have to make it something else for anyone else. You just need to take care of you. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. And what do you think doing all this work has taught you about yourself? I need to be more kind to myself to have space for self, not just self-care, which is so often used nowadays. I'm realizing self-compassion and self-love is very different than self-care. And it's thinking about the language and the words I use internally when I talk about myself or my art, especially frustrated or going through challenges. Am I using language that I'd use for people I love? 
you know, I need to reframe this. This is the work right now. Mm, that comes up a lot on the show. And I'm really glad you mentioned that. And I think that ties right into perfectionism too. Yeah, because that perfectionism is that inner critic gremlin telling you everything you do is wrong. <laughs> yes. It's an attempt to protect you from potential failures in your life. But again, I applied to something like 40 different group shows, exhibitions, things to promote my art online before I was accepted for the solo show. And if I had stopped applying, I would have never had my solo show, which I'm now working towards. Oh, that's so good. You know, and as you were talking, I thought of a question that goes back to intuition, and I'm just going to ask it because I think for those who are just starting out and who are not used to listening to their intuition, how do they start doing that? Because intuition, I think, is a really interesting thing because I think the more you listen to it, the more you get used to it, and the more you really trust what you're getting. I think intuition is all about trust. It is building your trust muscle. But for those who are just starting, I think there's a lot of lack of trust. Like, is yes. this real? Where is this coming from? Like, I'm not going to do that because that sounds crazy. How do we start building our trust muscle and listening? I think you need to find a safe space where you can connect with other people doing the work. Ultimately, that's one reason I created my community. And I'm sure that's part of why you created yours. It's a way for people to hear that what they're going through is actually normal and part of the creative process. So finding people you can trust. And again, I think it's showing up every day, even when you don't feel like it, because when you're doing that and you're making or you're having whatever you do for your creative practice, you can start to say, okay, well, I'm going to spend 15 minutes. And in these 15 minutes, I am not going to have a goal in mind, except to listen to what's next. And maybe you have a bunch of image prompts to get you started, or maybe it's that I'm going to get off the bus at the sixth stop, but you're going to give yourself some kind of structure to start listening to what you think should be next instead of what you think has to be next because of some imagined perfection ideal of what it should look like. Oh, I love that. Carrie, you have this really wonderful way of talking about all this. I think on top of the fact that you have a very soothing voice. <laughs> so <laughs> Thank you. everything you're saying just sounds like a bomb for our wounded, sad, hurt little souls or scared little souls. Where can we find more of you? Oh, thank you so much. I am starting to work on my Instagram presence a bit more. So I'm at Artist Strong there. And then if you are looking for resources and you identify as an artist self-taught or creative and you want some advice on skill like composition, things like that, you can check out my website, artiststrong.com. And how do you want people to remember this episode with you? I want people to remember that they have permission to create and explore ideas and that everything you make isn't about some finished, shiny, great project at the end. It's our life is the journey. And that's part of the joy of everything we do is being in the moment too. Oh, this was such an amazing talk. Thank you so much for your time, your insight, and for being out in the world, helping us tap into this and just be more creative and giving us the permission to do it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Grace. I love talking to you today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the show on iTunes and share it with a friend. Don't be shy. Reach out to me anytime online and I will catch you next week on the next episode.